every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Happy to be with you. Have some things I want to share with you today that may seem just a little bit off the beaten path, but I'm hoping you'll be better for it, uh, for hearing it, and I'll be better for sharing it. One of the things that uh, that occurs to me is, as, as I look at the growing chaos around us, I can't blame anybody for not wanting to run for the hills and ride out uh, our our coming collision with reality. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, there there are a lot of things that are in motion right now, and and this is in a a lot of different areas. Spiritually, there are things that are in commotion. Um, Economically, there are things that are in commotion. Uh, Politically, well, it's almost always been that way, it seems. But more and more, it's getting crazy. And, of course, this is just being exacerbated with the lockdowns returning in some areas, the threats of lockdowns, more mandates, more control over your life. Where does it stop? So I guess I, I, I can understand why someone would say, you know what? Enough. I'm out of here. I am going to, you know, pack my bags. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go somewhere where nobody will bother me. And, and maybe you've had this dream, too. I certainly have. I've had that, that sense of... Why don't I just move to a place in the country, or for better still, far away on a mountainside, you know, where if if somebody had to, if somebody was trying to get to where I live, they would have to travel, I don't know, 20, 40 miles, preferably on a dirt road to get there. That should be about far enough to buy me a little bit of peace of mind. But you know, there'd still be somebody who'd figure out, hey, <laughs> I saw some tire tracks and thought I'd come see who was here. Now, while it's understandable to want to just leave Dodge, let things go to hell in a handbasket on their own, I want to try to persuade you that you were born for more than that, and, and so was I. I can see that uh, there's, there's potential ugliness ahead, and I'd rather avoid it, but at the same time, there's, uh, there's something that speaks to my soul. It's a little voice that says, you weren't born to run. You weren't born to hide, and your influence is needed. However big or however small it is, your influence is needed in the world today. So maybe what we need to do, to borrow a phrase, is learn how to live out loud. I've got a great article here from Isaac Morehouse, and I don't know if you've seen the movie The Quiet Place. I won't give you any spoilers, but if you've seen the movie, it's, it's a pretty decent flick. Definitely has uh, has its moments, has some tension and what have you. But uh, yeah, he says we're living in the movie A Quiet Place, as well as its sequel. Here's what he means. 
if you speak, if you make any sound, if your existence, you, you living your life, you merely being or breathing broadcasts any kind of signal that disturbs the lurking devourers, you get killed. Now, he's talking about the cancel culture mob. He's talking about that cancel culture mentality. But I think this is a pretty good analogy, so I'm going to follow him with this. Isaac Morehouse says, this is speech. This is expression. This is living out loud. This is being your beliefs. What happens in this world? Well, all right. It's, it's the truth is most people get killed. A zombified cityscape remains in the movie. You know, there's an eerie, quiet shell of what it was before the madness. What do you do? And for a lot of people, the answer is, I hide, go off the grid, flee, hunker down. And yet they still get killed because humans can't live in silence. Others find a protected island utopia where they can live freely without the rest of the world knowing, but they too eventually get killed. Because humans living freely reverberates beyond the borders of any protected citadel. Now here he asks a question that's worth considering, and that is, is there any solution to such a suffocating force. It's not to remain quiet. It's not to run and hide. It's not to build a fortress. Those won't work in the long term because you're human. So he says you must speak out. You must live out loud. Your existence must register. Ultimately, the solution is to speak, but it's to be loud in a specific way. It's to find a frequency that cripples and destroys the enemy that wishes to silence you. And then to broadcast that frequency so loudly, it covers the globe. Now, if you've seen the movie A Hiding Place, this analogy should be making some sense. If you haven't, well, now you've got something you can consider doing for the weekend, right? Maybe even have some time for the sequel. I'm not trying to persuade you that, uh, you know... Hollywood has all the answers for us, but I do think Isaac Morehouse has a valid point. And when you see stuff going on in the world around you that you know is incongruent with how things could be or should be, you have a choice. You can turn your back. You can pretend it's not there. You can minimize your light. Whatever light you give to the world, you can hide it, you know, so that nobody's drawn to you, nobody criticizes you or anything, or... You can find a way to let your example, let your life be that force that, that, that brings what is and what could be, you know, it, it corrects things. It, it, it makes change happen in the right ways. Most people, I think, are averse to this because they understand, number one, there's a risk that you're going to be called out and cancel culture may come for you. And depending on your job, you know, it's, I mean, the the things that people are getting fired for these days, it's so crazy. You think about the police chief, oh, where, I can't remember the city he was in. Um, It wasn't a large city, but it was a, you know, big enough city. This police chief, I believe it was his spouse, had written something complimentary about Donald Trump on social media. But because of that, cancel culture came a-calling. He had to resign. A coach, a high school football coach, same thing. He posted something about, yeah, I voted for Trump and I'm proud of it. He wasn't trying to pick a fight. Somebody had asked him, well, did you vote for Trump? And his answer was, yeah, I did. I'm I'm proud of it. So if you're thinking, well, I'm going to be able to avoid pain. I'm going to be able to avoid criticism. The only way you're going to do that is to essentially become nothing. To just be a shadow. 
And it's my conviction you weren't born to be a shadow. You were born to make a difference. Just don't buy into the idea that it has to be a big, splashy difference that all the papers know about. It's on every, you know, every television screen across the world. It doesn't have to be headline news. If your difference that you're making is a small difference, even if it's in the life of one person or just a handful of people, it's still a difference. And in the grand scheme of things, it matters whether or not you step forward to make it happen. So, there you go. Think of this as a little verbal kick in the seat of the pants, but find the courage to be the light that other people are looking for. You won't always know when someone spots you and says, ah, I can find my way better, but you'll know you're on the right path because you'll feel peace in your heart regardless of what's going on around you. And in this time, that could be a tough thing. Now, speaking of this, just because there is a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of anger, a lot of animosity, I would say there's even just outright hatred driving a lot of people's thinking these days. I mean, think about this. There, there are enemy-driven people. I have a good friend, um, used to do morning radio with her. Uh, she's, she's a brilliant person, very smart. I, I would not hesitate to say in most instances, she's probably the smartest person in the room when, when you get her in, in there with a group of people. But for some reason, she can't stop thinking about Donald Trump. He hasn't been president for a long time. For seven months, this guy hasn't been president. And she still wakes up every day and focuses on what a horrible person he was. And back when he was president, every waking minute, she would wake up, flip on the news, but it was always, you know, those news media sources that would feed that to that confirmation of you're right he's terrible the source of all ill in the world and that's how she goes through her day i mean she's probably mensa material smart but she lets donald trump live rent free in her head when nothing that he is doing or saying is impacting her personally he only impacts her as much as she is willing to let it happen Now, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm condemning her for being a rotten person. I'm just saying what drives some people's thinking is really weird sometimes and obsessive, especially when it comes to political melodrama. But nothing can hold a candle to the kind of antipathy that you see with, with cancel culture. And I'll share a personal experience of how I've seen this play out firsthand in my life. I was fortunate enough about uh, 16 years ago to become friends with a guy by the name of Ryan Bundy. Yes, that Ryan Bundy. And I knew Ryan, you know, in very casual circumstances. I think I met him at a, at a town hall meeting or something. He was running, maybe he was a candidate. It was a, like a get-to-know-your-candidates meeting. He was running for one of the state offices, maybe the state legislature. But I became friends with him, and we had a mutual circle of friends. Long story short, I was at Bundy Ranch back in 2014. I was there with him and his family. I was uh, I was there the day that all the, the crazy stuff happened. One of the most significant things that happened that day is something very few people know about. And it was, uh, it was a prayer that was offered earlier that morning in a little field just outside of their, their ranch house. I'm not going to go into details. 
for people who don't believe, it'll waste their time. For those who do believe, some things are really, you know, they're they're sacred, sacred enough that they're they're just not for public consumption. But it was a powerful experience, and and it it cemented in my mind that the Bundy family, regardless of what people are thinking of them, they are good people. They are down to earth people, and over the course of uh, the next few years including when Ammon and others went up to the Malheur Wildlife Refuge and occupied that in an effort to draw attention to the Hammond family and an injustice being done to them, it was very clear that they were coming from a a place of faith rather than just raw animal anger towards government. There was certainly outrage over things that the federal government was doing and ways it was abusing and exceeding its authority, but here's the point. In the midst of all that, I also met another guy by the name of Lavoy Finnicum. You've probably heard his name. Lavoy approached me about, I'm going to say about six years ago. And he approached me first with a letter, just soliciting an interview because he'd written a book, a book called Only by Blood and Suffering. And as a host, I get a lot of offers, you know, from different authors to interview them about their latest book. And, you know, if it's something interesting, I'm happy to do it. But you get enough of them that sometimes it's like, oh, boy, here's another request for an interview because someone wrote a book. But when I saw in this author's letter, when I saw Lavoie had written, look, I'd like to come on your radio show. I'd like to talk about my book. I was at Bundy Ranch and I went, "Ooh, I definitely want to talk to this guy just because I want to get his perspective of, of what happened, what his experience was. And so he and I became friends, and he came on my radio program on a regular basis. He was uh, he, he would do uh, interviews with me. I think I have about nine hours of interviews that I've recorded with Lavoy Finnicum. The last three hours of interviews I did with him was when he and Ryan Bundy drove to southern Utah from the uh, Malheur Wildlife Refuge. That's a long trip, by the way. And it was during... What, uh, what the press mistakenly calls the standoff at Malheur. Or in fact, uh, it was no standoff because, you, you know, if you were in a standoff, if really, if there's guns pointed back and forth at each other, if people are barricaded and so forth, no, the police are not going to let you just drive off and then drive back, you know, a couple days later. But that's what they did. Lavoy came and asked if he could be on my show. I put him on my radio show. And I, I only tell you this because... I became close enough to the guy that I can tell you from firsthand experience. He was the real deal. He was a genuine, concerned citizen who loves liberty, who loves God, and loves his fellow man enough he was willing to stick his neck out and speak up and make a stand to try to protect those things that he felt mattered the most. Now, you probably already know how this story ends. Oregon State Police, along with the FBI when there wasn't so much as even an arrest warrant issued. I should probably mention this. When he came to see me, uh, there was a a listener who, I guess, uh, felt that, uh, you know, if Anne Frank is hiding in somebody's house, I better turn him in. Uh, Called the authorities, called the FBI, called the sheriff's office. Hey, Lavoie Finnicum is right down here at the radio studio. You guys need to come and arrest him. And they told him we can't. There's no warrant. Because he'd he'd been accused of no crime at that point. There's a good uh, video documentary out there called Dead Man Talking. It's from the Center for Self-Governance. And it uh, it's a marvelous documentary in that it uses the words of the people themselves, especially from recordings that were taken, often by government informants, 
to show what was going on behind the scenes when Ammon and others were making plans to occupy that uh, refuge. While that occupation was taking place, a number of state legislature, legislators rather, from Idaho and Washington and other surrounding states came to meet with the authorities there in Burns, Oregon. And while they were there, I think it was, uh, I want to say it was Representative Matt Shea in Washington who asked, the. first of all, he asked the Oregon State Police, can you name for us any law that these people occupying this refuge have broken? And he said, no, I can't. He was straightforward about it. Now, they asked the same question of the FBI. And you know what the answer was? Uh, that's something the Department of Justice is working on at this moment. Now, keep in mind, these are the professionals. These are the people whose job is to enforce the law. So you think they would have some kind of an idea. Yeah, well, we can clearly see that the law has been broken here or broken there. But at that point, they didn't. This was just a few days before, you know, they finally moved in and and went to arrest Ammon and Lavoie and others. So my point is, when the police set up that dead man's roadblock, which was a classic L-shaped military ambush. They had time to cut fire lanes, you know, trim the the, uh, tree branches so they had clear lanes of fire for their ambush. This was all set up in advance when there was absolutely no reason for them to escalate it to that point. But they did. They created a situation, they being the authorities, created a situation in which there was no margin for error, and then when uh, when Lavoie stepped out of his truck and gave them the slightest pretext, oh, he's reaching for his jacket, they killed him. I don't think he turned into a murderous individual in those last moments of his life. But when you're dealing with scared men with guns who you know have been told this guy is, is nothing more than a domestic terrorist... That's what they believed they were doing, was saving themselves and saving the public from this caricature that had been created by the media. And clearly a lot of people had bought into that caricature. Because after Lavoie was killed, the amount of hatred and vitriol and celebration that I saw on the part of people who really should have known better was staggering. And, you know, it's, it, it, brought, it brought out in me some of the darkest anger that I think I've ever felt in my life. I watched Lavoie's family go through the loss of this incredible husband and father and mentor. And I couldn't for the life of me imagine why people would be so eager to dive right on top of the pile. And, and where's their wounds? Where's, some, where's their wounds? We want to rub salt into their wounds. And these are people who'd never even met the guy. They have no clue what he's like. They're just caught up in that mob mentality. I want to share with you an article here from Alexander Riley. He lost a friend to suicide about a year ago, and it was a friend who was driven to his death by wicked words and deeds of people who were determined to ruin his life if they could. In other words, he was being hounded by the cancel culture mob. Alexander Riley says people loathed my friend, without knowing him in any meaningful human way, simply because he disagreed with their beliefs about political, cultural, and philosophical matters. It was a terrible thing. Now, he says, we can't change such things. All we can do is learn the lessons they teach. But he says, my friend Mike Adams' death powerfully recalled to me the dreadful truth that justice is not to be had in this world. 
I believed I knew this already, but my ability to hide it from myself in the vain hope that I might somehow forget it is formidable. And he says, when Mike died, those who had desired his destruction claimed his own hatred led him to his demise, and he had done things to deserve disgrace. Alexander Riley says, those of us who knew him understood what a monstrous lie that was. We challenged it publicly. But some of the people who hated the version of him they'd created in their own minds are influential in the central cultural institutions of our society, and their lie has largely carried the day. He says their insane hatred of him, which he did not reciprocate, made it possible for him for them to recognize reality, made it impossible, rather, for them to recognize reality, and our current elitist culture embraces those same warped sensibilities. Now, he says, Mike's death also taught me an essential lesson about forgiveness and its boundaries. Knowing the seriousness of Mike's faith, I have been mightily desirous of cultivating the spiritual ability to forgive. I'd like to be able to absolve those who caused his end and then gloated about it after the fact. But I also know the passage in Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace in which Prince Andre contemplates an enemy whom he suspects of the worst moral transgressions against him. His sister Maria calls to him to the path of forgiveness. Andre, one thing I beg, I entreat of you, she said, touching his elbow and looking at him with eyes that shone through her tears. I understand you, she looked down. Don't imagine that sorrow is the work of men. Men are his tools. She looked a little above Prince Andre's head with the confident, accustomed look with which one looks at a place where a familiar portrait hangs. Sorrow is sent by him, not by men. Men are his instruments. They're not to blame. If you think someone has wronged you, forget it and forgive. You have no right to punish. And then you know the happiness of forgiving. If I were a woman, I would do so, Maria. That is a woman's virtue, but a man should not and cannot forgive and forget, he replied. And though until that moment he had not been thinking of Kurrigan, all his unexpended anger suddenly welled up in his heart. If Maria is already persuading me to forgive, it means that I ought long ago to have punished him, he thought. And giving her no further reply, he began thinking of the glad, vindictive moment when he would meet Kurrigan, who he knew was now in the army. That's the end of the excerpt. Now, Alexander Riley says, internally, I should perhaps forgive the hate-filled people who hounded my friend to his death. The moral good thereof might well help me settle my troubled mind. But he says, I've not yet acquired this ability. And I admit this is a great struggle for me, as Prince Andre's view of this matter overlaps considerably with my own. But the internal struggle goes on. Externally, though, the example of Mike's life, he says, is perfectly in tune with a sound understanding of the distinction between the internal spiritual struggle and the political imperative to defeat the enemy. So he says, I can struggle internally to forgive them their hatred while still working politically against the people who pushed my friend to his death. He says, I would be vindicated in the work itself and in seeing their perverse ideas defeated, even as I continue to try to forgive them for perpetrating their evil. He says, the final moral lesson learned from Mike's death, perhaps the most important of the three, is that those we least suspect of alienation and suicidal loneliness can fall into that dark pit and be unable to climb out alone. Mike was strong and confident, far from the stereotypical suicide risk. So Alexander Riley says, we all need sustenance from those who love us, and we are all morally charged to look out for those we love. So he says, I will tell a friend today that I am here for him. 
May I ask you to consider doing the same? I know. If you were thinking, well, okay, so get to the get to the red meat part. You know, where where do we start, you know, rising up? <laughs> Feed my anger. Nope. Nope. I know. I've thrown a curveball at you. Maybe more anger isn't what's needed. Definitely your participation is needed, but there's enough anger. There's enough hatred. We've got to figure out how to stand for what we're going to stand for without bringing more anger into the situation. That's a tough order, but I think you're up to it, and I hope I am too. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders, and this is The Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio liberty and justice for all welcome back to the disciples of liberty here on the america out loud network my name is brian hyde i'm filling in for tim alders so, I love my iPhone. I'm not trying to tell you you need to be an Apple fanboy, but uh, somebody turned me on to Apple products about, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. And I was reluctant because it just seemed trendy, and I'm not the kind of person who really likes to, I want to be trendy. Ooh, me too, me too. But uh, sometimes they're very easy to use. And, and, you know, for a person who doesn't want to do a deep dive into all the operating systems and stuff, it makes a lot of sense. And it's taken me a few years to get to this point, but I am starting to feel a little pinge of buyer's remorse, especially when I see a headline like this one. Apple will scan iPhones for illegal child abuse images, sparking a privacy debate. I mean, look, Apple products are notorious for, first of all, they're notorious for working. It's a solid product. They they do good work. However, 
everything is proprietary, so it has to be done according to them, and you have to get the updates, or it quickly, you know, starts to drain the battery, it starts to become, you know, more cumbersome and obsolete. And I guess that's good for them, right? Apple's like, oh, yes, that's job security for us. And they had a pretty good record of defending people's privacy. If you remember, when was it? Five years ago, when there were the uh, there was a mass shooting in uh, I want to say in San Bernardino, California, and the individuals who were accused of doing this, uh, killed in a shootout with police, were a husband and wife, and maybe one or two other people um, accused of being Islamic terrorists. But they had an iPhone. And the FBI was leaning on Apple. We need you to unlock that iPhone. And Apple, I thought at the right time, at the time, was doing the right thing by saying, no, we won't do that. We won't give you a back door to all of our customers' phones. Because if we give you the back door to this one phone, you'll have the, the back door to any of the phones. So I had the impression at one time they were, they were pretty keen on privacy. I'm not so sure now. This is an article from the Epic Times saying Apple announced Thursday it's planning to scan all iPhones in the United States for child abuse imagery, which is raising alarms among security experts who say that plan could allow the firm to surveil tens of millions of personal devices for unrelated reasons. In a blog post, the company confirmed reports saying that new scanning technology is a part of a suite of child protection programs that would evolve and expand and it'll be rolled out as part of iOS 15, which is scheduled for release sometime this month. Now, Apple, which has touted itself as a company which promises to safeguard users' right to privacy, will try to preempt privacy concerns by saying that uh, software will enhance those protections by avoiding the need to carry out widespread image scanning on its cloud servers. The company said this innovative new technology allows Apple to provide valuable and actionable information rather, to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and Law Enforcement regarding the proliferation of known CSAM. That's an acronym of Child Sexual Abuse Material. And it does so while providing significant privacy benefits over existing techniques since Apple only learns about users' photos if they have a collection of known child sexual abuse material in their iCloud Photos account. Even in these cases, Apple only learns about images that match known child sex abuse material. But now, if you're like me, that's you're still scratching. Okay, I'm okay. You you want to you know catch and punish and hold responsible those who abuse and prey upon children? Oh, I'm right there with you. Absolutely, yeah, they should be held accountable. What I'm worried about, though, is the net through which they're straining everybody you know, to catch those who may be holding illicit material. How can we have to strain everybody through that net? And I know there are those who will say, well, you know, if you have nothing to hide, <laughs> you should have nothing to fear. But see, minds like mine work at this and say, well, but what else will they be looking for? I mean, because I got some sick memes that I've been sharing. My kids are the ones who share memes with me, and I share memes back. And good heavens, somebody would be offended. I mean, it's not a good meme unless somebody would be offended by it. How long before they start scanning for those? I know, I'm describing the slippery slope. Maybe, maybe it would come to pass, maybe it wouldn't. But uh, under the excuse of we're trying to find child pornography in people's phones, I mean, 
whatever happened to the idea of uh, due process here? Again, I'm not I'm not looking for any safe harbor for child pornographers. I'm just saying, unless there's something that indicates, ooh, this person may be involved in something like that, why search everybody's phones? Why scan everybody's phones? Just a little something to keep in mind. I love my smartphone. I, I'm, I'm so grateful to have all that information and all that processing power and a, and a very high-quality camera and, and video, you know, a camcorder and, and all of these things right there at my fingertips. I love it. It makes life so easy. But it looks like there were some, some undesirable hangers-on that came along with it. And that I'm not down with. And frankly, you probably shouldn't be down with it either. So be aware. We may have a choice to make, and if that's the case, then, yeah, let's let's make the right choice. When it comes to getting information to have a, a better take on the world, there are some voices that I put more uh, trust in than others. Most mainstream media voices, you know, if, if they're reading from what Tom Woods calls the 3 by 5 index card of approved opinion, I really don't care. I might learn something, but generally I'm just being told, here's what you're supposed to believe. At least that's how it sounds to my ears. But there are voices like John Stossel, who I think does a very good job of of reporting the facts, whether he agrees with them or not. He'll tell you how things are. I like people like Caitlin Johnstone. I like Ben Swan. Glenn Greenwald, I hold up as as an excellent example of a journalist who, I, I, I call these people journalists and I say, I think that they're more trustworthy because they actually are willing to call out the people in power. They're willing to speak truth to power. Whereas most mainstream pundits and reporters, they're trying to do whatever they can to uh, to be a good puppy dog, a good lap dog to those in power, to ingratiate themselves and, and, and further solidify, I'm here, I'm here for you. I'll run cover for whatever you say. Whatever you say, we'll report it with a straight face and make sure that we make it credible to anybody who's listening or watching. Yeah, not, not down with that. So here is one of those voices that I really have come to trust. And that would be a guy by the name of James Bovard. He writes for the American Institute for Economic Research. He's written numerous books. Um, He's a contributor to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Playboy, Washington Post, New Republic, Reader's Digest. This guy is, is a very seasoned observer. And he calls it straight. Maybe a little too straight for some people, but I like that. That directness actually is a, is a plus to me. He has a column here about pseudo-omniscience versus freedom. Think about this in terms of all the experts telling you what you must do in regards to COVID-19. Bovard says, shut up and submit is now the favorite COVID cure of some of America's leading progressives. He says Paul Krugman, a Nobel Prize winner and New York Times columnist, revealed on Tuesday that since freedom is a mirage, people have no good reason not to comply with endless government commands. Now, unfortunately, punitive panaceas are increasingly popular among both politicians and pundits. Krugman breezily expunges years of Supreme Court rulings to remove any impediment to forcibly injecting 100 million Americans with an experimental vaccine. Krugman explains that when people on the right talk about freedom, what they actually mean is closer to defensive privilege, especially the right of certain people, generally white male Christians, to do whatever they want. 
Blacks and Hispanics have lower rates of COVID vaccinations than whites, but the freedom of minority groups is apparently irrelevant because some Trump supporters are anti-vax loudmouths. Now, James Bovard says other progressive stalwarts have jumped on the iron fist bandwagon. Pundit uh, Matthew Iglesias actually uh, has declared that people should either take $50 for getting vaccinated now or else you get jabbed later while someone holds you down and you get $50. You get $0, rather. Washington Post columnist Ruth Marcus, who previously championed legal immunity for Bush administration torturers and sneered at Americans who complained about intrusive TSA searches, calls for mandating vaccines because it's time to stop coddling the reckless. Maximizing misery is Marcus's health prescription. The more inconvenient we make life for the unvaccinated, the better our own lives will be. Similarly, Harvard professor Joseph Allen, writing in the Washington Post on Tuesday, why are so many people acting like this vaccine mandate is some kind of affront to our liberties? We have a silver bullet that can end this crisis. Why are we afraid to pull the trigger? Now, Krugman's condemnation of other Americans hinges on the presumed omniscience of federal regulators. Krugman declares, we now have highly effective vaccines freely available to every American who's at least 12 years old. There's been a lot of hype about breakthrough infections associated with the Delta variant, but they remain rare. Ah, says James Bovard, but not as rare as honest federal statistics. The CDC in May ceased keeping track of breakthrough infections unless they resulted in hospitalization or death. The Biden administration guaranteed the vast majority of breakthrough infections would not be counted. Thus, Fauci and others could endlessly appear on television and derided any suggestion that they were occurring in serious numbers. The CDC pockets $8 billion a year in tax, in, in tax money, but they can't be bothered to, ga- to gather the data that would be the best guide to the efficacy of the vaccines. So after a COVID outbreak affecting more than 500 vaccinated individuals at a, at a province town, at, at Provincetown had spurred headlines in Massachusetts for nearly a week, the CDC finally issued a report on, on July 29th belatedly conceding vaccines failed to prevent new infections. Hundreds of staffers at two San Francisco hospitals tested COVID positive last month, even though 75 to 80 percent had been vaccinated. He says abroad, the efficacy of vaccines is fading faster than the reliability of last season's campaign promises. Germany just announced that it will start new injections due to quickly subsiding immune response after a full COVID-19 vaccination in certain groups of people. Half the new COVID cases in Israel were fully vaxxed and cases are getting to severe and critical conditions. In Singapore, 75% of new infections reportedly occur in people who are partially and fully vaccinated. And on Tuesday, the CDC warned Americans against traveling to Ireland because of very high COVID risks due to outbreaks, even though 67% of the Irish have had at least one COVID vaccination. He also says on Tuesday, a front-page Washington Post headline hailed the success of the U.S. government effort, U.S. hits Biden's vaccine goal late. The accompanying article included a progress update from Biden's White House COVID-19 data director, triumphantly echoed across the American media landscape. He says this is reminiscent of Stalin's 1930 boast about being dizzy with success about the rapid forcible seizure of private farmland for Soviet collective farms. Unvaccinated Americans are the new kulaks. 
endlessly vilified and blamed for being wreckers of the Biden salvation scheme. Soviet agriculture statistics shunted aside the far superior output of the remaining private farms. Similarly, Biden's COVID policy ignores the natural immunity possessed by the 119 million Americans who have survived COVID, according to CDC statistics. Stalin's collectivization drive resulted in a famine that killed up to 10 million people in the Ukraine and elsewhere in the Soviet Union. Now, James Bovard says hopefully we won't see another parallel on that score. The New York Times covered up that 1930s catastrophe, publishing false reports claiming there was no famine and winning a Pulitzer Prize in the bargain. So do some progressives see COVID mandates as simply another chance to virtue signal? Ruth Marcus hailed D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser for having wisely reimposed a mask mandate in the city. Bowser decreed a $1,000 fine for people violating her mask decree, which applies to people even waiting outside for a bus. Now, the fact that Bowser was speedily caught violating her own edict is irrelevant to the sanctity of mask mandates. Marcus, like other herd journalists, may be totally clueless on the data showing that masks fail to prevent the spread of COVID, as AIER, that's American Institute for Economic Research, has repeatedly documented. I think there are up to 36 studies now that show masks do nothing to mitigate the spread of the virus. But hey, you know, don't take my word for it. There's actually a link in James Bovard's article on the AIER.org website that uh, can show you this. But he says the masks remain invaluable as a tool for the mathematically illiterate to demonstrate their devotion to science and data. So here's the point. Freedom is being rapidly defined to connote whatever privileges remain after citizens submit to the latest decrees. And every time you submit, that gives permission to those who are giving those decrees to move the goalposts yet again, because they know you're going to comply. Back to the article. New York City just decreed that vaccination passes will be required for citizens to go to restaurants, gyms, and entertainment venues. In his press conference on Tuesday, Mayor Bill de Blasio said, and if you do get vaccinated, you're around fully vaccinated people. You still have more freedom than folks who are not vaccinated. So really, it's strategic. To which Jim Bovard asked, did New York City voters realize at the last election they were designating a czar who could impose unlimited restrictions on their movement throughout the Big Apple? In time we hate that which we often fear, William Shakespeare wrote four centuries ago. COVID policy nowadays seems driven more by rage and hatred than by facts which debunk official storylines. Twitter followers exalt Krugman for asserting the rhetoric of freedom is actually about privilege. Unfortunately, plenty of prominent poobahs are enjoying the privilege of trying to destroy other Americans' freedom. I think he could safely drop the mic after that one. That is so spot on. I have a daughter who's studying to be a nurse, and she, as yet, I'm knock on wood as I say this, is unvaccinated. And when I ask her, you know, she and I, I, I don't press her. Why not? Why are you not taking it? I just, I just so what's, what's, what's holding you back from, from taking the vaccine? And her answer is, I think, very consistent for a person who has thought this thing through. She says, I'm just not convinced that it's in my best interest to do so. Now, that's all I really need to know. Okay. 
So I'm going to, you know, do I, if I, if I were going to try to push the vaccine, well, I would try to persuade her. But no, for some people, it's like, oh, a challenge. Now I need to, I need to force you. I need to coerce you. But just a word to the wise, when it comes to persuading somebody, if you insult them, if you denigrate them, you call them a grandma killer. She has coworkers who have referred to her as a grandma killer. And, and keep in mind, my daughter, as a CNA, as a nurse in training, has spent the better part of the last year working in the ICU, working in the COVID ward. She knows very well what uh, what this virus is capable of. She's not ignorant to it. But it's her choice to make. And the fact that she's being treated like a second-class citizen by people who ought to know better is really telling. I mean, we usually we usually have some, I think, we rightly have a little bit of reverent awe for medical professionals. These are people who pull off the equivalent of miracles regularly. Saving people's lives, nursing people back to health. But there's a flavor of medical tyranny right now, and it's setting up a form of, a, of medical apartheid that is, is very disturbing for those who can look beyond the fear of the virus and see the bigger picture. Now, if you've taken the vaccine, I'm not going to tell you, oh, that's it, you're done. They have injected the nanobots and the mind control serum into you. And I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the, the, I don't know if the efficacy of the vaccine is as good as they say. I know there are some downsides that we're seeing, people suffering blood clots and myocarditis and other ailments. Which, you know, that's, it's experimental. It's, it's not even, it hasn't been around long enough to go through the full approval process, which I think is actually pretty cumbersome on the part of the FDA. But we don't even have that to lean on. So if someone decides they don't want to take the, the vaccine, that's their, their prerogative, just like it's their prerogative if they decide to take the vaccine. My point is simply, only you know what's best, what's, it, what's in your best interest, and what is right for you. That can't be made by somebody else. And it sure can't be made with a one-size-fits-all top-down approach. So if you're one of those few holdouts who's, uh, you know, still, you know, you're still taking, um, you're fielding questions from people who who want to know, why won't you take the vaccine? I mean, you could just tell them, hey, that's private medical information under HIPAA. I'm not required to tell you anything. But I want to share with you a take from a guy named Steve McCann about why he refuses to be vaccinated. This is someone who's put some pretty serious thought into why he doesn't want to take the vaccine. He says, I've been vilified for refusing to be jabbed with an experimental vaccine. I've been told that I'm among the worst people on the face of the earth, as that refusal is putting an inordinate number of people at risk of near certain death. That it's my duty and obligation to be swept up in the hysteria and march meekly in lockstep with whatever the omniscient government bureaucrats tell us to do. That I must sacrifice personal choices and freedom for the benefit of the collective. That in fact the the choice to get a vaccine and wear a mask is an expression of one's freedom. To be a moral citizen and to protect family, community, and country. Steve McCann says, Joe Biden has told me that I am unpatriotic and a very stupid person for not being vaccinated and robotically believing his claim. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccines. Which he says, that's an out and out lie. Now, Steve McCann says, I'm in my later 70s and over my lifetime, I have lived among and been exposed to people in refugee camps suffering from tuberculosis, cholera, 
hepatitis B and diphtheria, and after arriving in the United States, polio. He says, I managed to get through the Asian flu pandemic in 1957 and 58, the Hong Kong flu pandemic of 1968 and 69, the HIV AIDS pandemic in the 80s, and the swine flu pandemic in 2009 and 10. Thus, he says, I'm well aware of the medical risks and realities, particularly when it comes to my health. And he says, and I've been vaccinated for everything from tuberculosis to diphtheria to smallpox to polio to the annual flu. I've been reliably informed that I have a very robust immune system. And thankfully, I've never been seriously ill with any viral or bacterial infections. He says, I researched from credible non-government sources the evolution and development of the mRNA vaccines. That's the Pfizer and Moderna ones. Their possible side effects and the approval process. After considering the short and long-term unknowns of a new type of vaccine that contains attenuated virus based on the COVID-19 genetic code provided by China, combined with the realities of COVID infections, I concluded that I was unwilling to run the risk of compromising an immune system that had maintained my good health for nearly eight decades. Now, he says, my medical history and attendant health decisions are unique to me. Every person in the United States has their own distinctive medical history, and depending on circumstances, heredity, and previous access to medication, and an immune system, able or unable to fend off a variety of diseases. He says a one-size-fits-all vaccine, particularly one that was approved on an emergency basis with unknown short- and long-term side effects, requires allowing the citizenry to evaluate the risk for themselves. Instead, those that choose not to vaccinate are being called vile names and being threatened, intimidated, and coerced by politicians and government bureaucrats. Additionally, vaccines are being mandated as a condition of employment by many private businesses and in the federal government at the direction of the Biden administration. I think it was just this morning I saw the headline that CNN had just terminated, fired three employees for failing to be vaccinated. After that was made a requirement, if you want to work here, you've got to be vaccinated. Now, can you imagine the outcry if Fox News, for instance, were to go back and terminate three employees because they had abortions? I mean, we would never, never hear the end of, hey, that was, that was a medical privacy issue, and you should never have you know, brought that into, into the equation. Steve McCann says, there are those who are attempting to compare the Supreme Court's approval of individual states mandating the smallpox vaccine in response to a virulent outbreak around the turn of the 20th century as legal justification for the de facto mandating of COVID vaccines. But the differences could not be starker. Listen to these numbers. Nearly 30,000 out of 100,000 of those that contracted smallpox died of smallpox. Less than 110 out of 100,000 who contracted COVID-19 died of COVID-19. That's quite a difference in those numbers. 30,000 versus 110 out of 100,000. Further, he says the smallpox vaccine had been well-developed over 100 years before 1900, and its, its benefits and side effects were well-known. As further validation that the COVID vaccines were approved with little or no assessment of short or long-term effects, this past May, Professor Luc Montagnier, a French virologist and Nobel Prize winner, predicted a potential outcome of mass vaccinations. 
Listen to what he warned about. He said, mass vaccinations are a scientific error as well as a medical error. It is an unacceptable mistake. The history books will show that because that will show that because it is the vaccination that is creating the variants. He says there are antibodies created by the vaccine forcing the virus to find another solution or die. This is how the variants, such as the Delta variant, are created. These variants are a production and result of the vaccine. Now, Steve McCann says every country that has pushed mass mass vaccinations rather has experienced tremendous growth in COVID cases as well as increased hospitalizations and death rates, both among both vaccinated and unvaccinated people brought about by these variants. Fortunately, the variants to date, while highly contagious, do not appear to cause the same hospitalization and mortality rate as the first or alpha variant. But that doesn't stop the Marxist-inspired Democrats and the Biden administration from using the growth in cases to again threaten mandatory vaccinations, mask mandates, and potential lockdowns in furtherance of their strategy put in place at the beginning of the pandemic to strip Americans of their rights and transform the populace into one that will meekly acquiesce to any specious government edicts. He says, it became clear to me in March of 2020 that the Chinese coronavirus would be politically weaponized to defeat President Trump in the 2020 election and to launch the creation of a hybrid American version of a police state and that all edicts and mandates from elected politicians were politically motivated. Further, Drug approvals or disapprovals, as in the case of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, emanating from the Democrat Party-controlled federal medical bureaucracy, also had to be viewed through the lens of political and or financial motivation. He says individual freedom is an increasingly rare commodity in the world today, as it's under siege virtually everywhere and now in the country that once epitomized liberty. Making an informed decision whether to be vaccinated or not is part and parcel of the most fundamental of all freedoms. Steve McCann says the American Marxists currently in control of the Democratic Party and myriad institutions believe that not only public health programs, but all public policy should be based on force and coercion. By forcing the American citizenry, to compromise their rights through overt prevarications and enforcing ill-advised mandates. The entire structure of individual freedom is eroded and trust in the government permanently compromised. He says these collectivists fail to understand that protecting constitutional rights encourages societal solidarity. How's this for ironic? People are more likely to trust officials who protect their personal liberty. Without trust, public officials will not be able to persuade the public to make the to take the most reasonable precautions during future emergencies, which will make a bad situation even worse. 21st century health depends on good science, good communication, and trust in public officials to tell the truth. By refusing to succumb to the pressure to get the COVID vaccination, these Americans are telling those in government that preserving the public's health in the 21st century requires preserving respect for personal liberty. Again, this is an article published on the AmericanThinker.com by Steve McCann, Why I Refuse to be Vaccinated. I think he lays out, I mean, a very logical and methodical list of reasons why it, it, it 
makes sense to him. And keep in mind, the guy is, you know, in his late 70s. He's at high risk of all the people who should be, oh, wow, you know, he's, he's in that high-risk group. But he's decided for himself what's right and what wouldn't be right for him. So there's a line in the sand in front of you, if you look very closely, or at least there should be a line in the sand. It's your line. How far will you allow government to intrude in your life and dictate to you the things that you must do? I think I know the answer for myself, and I'm hoping you now have a better idea of where you stand as well. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.